back to Trennis Magnus, Jab's Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and I, for one, am completely freaking amazed at the largely positive response I got to that episode I did about Comicsgate. For those of you who don't know, I released uh, an episode of Trennis Magnus Jab's Reality just a couple of days ago about Comicsgate, and this is one of those things where I went into it just kind of thinking this was going to be like a fire and forget sort of a thing where I can just dash off an episode and release it same day I record it, just throw it out there, and that would be that. Well, apparently that is not that. The response, as I say, has been surprisingly positive. And I say surprisingly positive because of the fact that I'm always pleasantly surprised when anybody agrees with me about anything. I don't know, maybe it's just I'm a little bit of a contrarian or something, I don't know, but it's just, I typically expect someone to disagree with me, so when people don't disagree, that is to say when they do agree with me, it always kind of catches me off guard. So anyway, for those of you who have expressed, shall we say, uh, positive opinions about my comic skate episode thank you very much i really appreciate that and the reason i'm being kind of oblique about it is because some of these people are well some of them are podcasters and i don't necessarily want them to get stuck in the same muck that i'm in so you know it's one thing if you know i'm covered in mud but i get the idea of these people maybe they don't want to be covered in the same mud as me so that's fine i'm certainly happy to protect their anonymity but anyway to get into uh, I guess the blood and guts of what today's episode is supposed to be all about for those of you who are not Facebook friends with me and I suppose also those of you who are not members of the Trennis Magnus Punches Reality Facebook page over this three-day weekend I engaged in my customary uh, Lord of the Rings rewatch because it actually works out rather conveniently right three-day weekend one movie per day yeah you can fit that in you know pretty easy to do actually so that's what I did now to kind of give you guys uh, my origin story with Lord of the Rings I know this is going to be old information for some of you but it's like the saying goes you never know which podcast episode could be somebody's first podcast episode my origin story with uh, Lord of the Rings and I would say really with all things Tolkien uh, really it in a strange kind of way, it actually goes back to Led Zeppelin, believe it or not, because Robert Plant, in a few Led Zeppelin songs, he he name-checked, or, yeah, name-checked, I guess, uh, different parts of uh, the Tolkien uh, legendarium. Or if he didn't necessarily do that, he might have maybe not quoted from Tolkien, but uh, tossed in a line or two of a song that was clearly influenced by Tolkien, right? Not necessarily directly lifted out of Lord of the Rings, but let's not overlook the similarities either, right? Like all that glitters is gold and Stairway to Heaven, you know? A variation on some... Uh, well, actually, I guess really the antithesis of that is actually found in Lord of the Rings, where all that glitters is not gold, right? So, anyway. So, yeah. I tried reading The Hobbit when I was about 16 or something like that, and just 
didn't really get into it. I should say here that when it comes to fiction, I'm really more of a of a sci-fi kind of guy than than I am fantasy, right? This is not to speak of the fact that Tolkien has a certain type of writing style, and whatever it was I was looking for from The Hobbit when I was 16, apparently didn't get it. And so, didn't really get all that far with it because I kept waiting for the story to start and it fucking never started. And maybe that's a microcosm of the problem that I had with Tolkien there for a lot of years where I knew that the Lord of the Rings movies were really good. I just couldn't see it, you know? I mean, I knew that the masses were not responding to nothing, you know? The Lord of the Rings movies were extremely popularly acclaimed and that doesn't come out of nowhere. You know, you don't get a rep like that from nothing. And so, obviously there's something about these movies that people love, but try though I might, couldn't figure it out, right? And that was kind of the stalemate that I found myself in for a, really a lot of years there where it's like I recognize the brilliance of something, but I don't, I don't get it. I, I, I guess is the point, you know? Like, I know there's something amazing about this, but I'm just not connecting to it, you know? And in the end, what what did it for me, and I know this is going to be sort of Captain Obvious to a lot of you uh, Tolkien fans that are listening to this, but, you, you know, you got to keep in mind, not all of us are starting from the same place that you are, right? But what really kind of unlocked things for me was that I was trying to... Re- trying to view the Lord of the Rings movies as as a story, you know, like as a narrative. You know, there's there, there's a story that's being told here, and that's just, the, that that's the baggage that, that I was bringing to it. And indeed there is. There is a story to Lord of the Rings, obviously, right? But there's more than that, you know? Uh, basically, the, the book that Tolkien wrote, it's as much world-building as it is storytelling. And if you don't, if you don't really get that, then it's, in my opinion, and certainly in my experience, it's harder to, it's harder to really enjoy the material, you know, because, you know, speaking as somebody who at least at one time used to be more of like a, like a plot kind of guy, I kept, I kept getting antsy in these scenes, you know, um, like what happens next? What happens next? What happens next? And and all of that stuff. And and like I say, I mean, look, that's a valid question to ask of any story. I'm not saying that Tolkien is immune to that expectation. The 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 storyteller must tell the story, right? And you know, I would never say otherwise. But at the same rate, you know, there is, you know, Tolkien has a has a style of storytelling that if you're going to enjoy his work, you pretty much have to get on board with right away, you know? And if you don't, you're just not going to connect to the material, you know? And so a good example of what I'm talking about is there's a, um, I guess it's a prologue at the beginning of uh, Lord of the Rings, uh, the book, where basically Tolkien talks about the history of the hobbits. And in the grand scheme of things, what does that really contribute to the story? Not very much. You know, it does it does kind of account for some of the uh, expressions uh, that, you know, different hobbits use throughout 
uh, throughout the book. And uh, I guess it's useful as background information, but what does it really contribute to the story? I would suggest not very much, but that's kind of, it's like at once that's the point and that's not the point. You know, the issue is that what Tolkien wanted to do was explain to the reader, people who had never read The Hobbit, basically who hobbits are, what motivates their society, give you a little bit of a flavor of their background and their history, where they come from, you know, their habits, their culture, um, on and on and on, right? And that's the purpose of that prologue, you know? And so if, if you're just sitting there reading this from the standpoint of, okay, what happens next? What happens next? What happens next? You're not going to get as into it, you know? In fact, I would even go so far as to say it almost comes off like a waste of time. But if you enjoy, you know, world building and character development and things like that, the prologue for Lord of the Rings, I would say, is absolute refined gold, you know? It's an amazing uh, piece of prose just all by itself, you know? No matter how good or bad the, the book that follows is or isn't, that prologue is fucking astounding as far as... Uh, I guess world building is concerned. It's just incredibly well done, you know. And so, and and I think that you know you you can't really go inside of a of a writer's head, especially one you know who is uh, uh, who's dead, like Tolkien is. You can't really go inside of a writer's head. But I can't help thinking that part of the reason that Tolkien why he kicked off you know, basically his opus, you know, Lord of the Rings. This is kind of his masterpiece, right? The reason he kicked it off with this prologue about hobbits that doesn't really contribute much to the narrative, but contributes tons and tons and tons to the world and the myth that, that he's developing, he wanted you to understand, literally right from page one, what kind of story this is going to be, you know? And, you know, basically how this book is going to unfold where maybe in the middle of the narrative you get the history of a bridge that the characters cross and it's not like it's a major moment in the story or anything but it is important enough to Tolkien to put the narrative on pause and say yeah and by the way about this bridge you know here's some interesting factoids about it and then we move right along with the story you know and at the same time and I'm talking about the book here not the movies but um you know, there are questions that he answers that nobody ever asked, such as the history of the hobbits. But then there are also questions he asks that he never gives answers to, right? Like Goldberry, for example. Who the fuck, or what the fuck, is Goldberry? Well, nothing in the book is going to give you a lot of explanation about that. Now, there's conjecture out there aplenty. But there are no definitive answers directly from the author, right? Or Tom Bombadil. What's up with Tom Bombadil? Well, short supply. And this is just an incredibly, in my opinion, creative, and when you think about it, kind of ballsy way to write a book, you know, that has all of these different detours and raises all these questions that don't necessarily have answers and all of that. And it's... To me, it's just, it, it's, it, it's kind of like the sign of a, uh, of a brave writer who believes in himself and his style and his story, 
and his mythical universe to such a degree that he's willing to take risks and chances like that, that, you know, he doesn't necessarily give the reader everything, you know? And the other thing is, uh, the things that he does give us are not necessarily always germane to the, the spine of the plot of Frodo somehow or another getting his hands on, on the One Ring, and then he he basically has it thrust upon him that it's his mission now to see to it that the ring is destroyed, you know? And so what does, you know, goings on with uh, the history of pipeweed really have to do with that? Not much. And so to kind of tie it over with the movies, it makes sense that stuff like that would be removed from the movies. Cause honestly, how could you possibly include stuff like that in a movie? without turning it into kind of like a weird sort of like infomercial history channel type of thing. I mean, you know, this is one of those times when the strength of, you know, a prose novel, the things that it can do that a movie just can't, you know, this is one of those times when those differences really do come out, you know, pretty clearly. So, so there's that going on. Now, as it goes for the movies, Basically, what I've done for a while now is I've basically I've basically decided for myself that, you know what? I'm only going to watch the Lord of the Rings trilogy once a year. You know, uh, this is a this is a trilogy that honestly I didn't really get. You know, like I was saying a minute ago, I didn't really get it for a long time there. And. Now that I. I think I've got some kind of better context, you know, for understanding it. This is something that I don't want to ever get tired of. You know, I don't want this to get played out and worn out. And, you know, I, I guess what I'm saying is I don't want to have the movies memorized, you know, you know, that's affirmatively what I'm trying to avoid, you know, because, you know, I don't know as I'd go so far as to say that I've got Star Wars, 77 memorized or Jaws memorized or Superman the movie memorized or uh, uh, Batman 1989. I've got that memorized. You know, I, I, I don't think that I do, but those things are so just burned into my memory that it's almost like there's nothing really fresh about them anymore, which is fine. I mean, there is such a thing as uh, as a classic, you know, something that you've got all the dialogue memorized and, you know, you know exactly you know, how long, you know, every single uh, camera shot lasts, you know, and uh, how long all the different scenes are, how long the credits are supposed to last. And you would somehow be able to know if the movie has somehow been sped up, even by 1%, you'd be able to recognize it somehow. And I don't want to have that degree of familiarity with the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And the reason for that is because I really do cherish these movies and I want them to always be fresh for me, you know? And if it, if it ever got to a point where I could, you know, recite all of the dialogue by heart, I don't even need to have the movie going as a prompt. I just know all the dialogue by heart. I think it would lose something, at least for me, you know? I'm not saying that I don't that I don't get it if somebody else out there loves those movies so much they could watch them, you know, zillions of times and it would never get old. Like I found this, this, uh, 
this uh, article from like 2013 or 2014 or something like that. And somehow some metrics from uh, Netflix uh, leaked out to the public, you know, who knows? And basically in it, it came out that from January the 1st of one year to December the 31st of that same year, a Netflix customer watched Return of the King 361 times. There are 365 days in the year, and he watched Return of the King 361 times. And, you know, hey, look, props to anybody who loves the movie that much, but the fear I have with watching it even just nowhere even near that many times is that I would get sick of it. You know, I would get tired of, of this amazing film trilogy that I would stop appreciating it after a certain point, you know? And the book is incredibly well done. I love the book. It, you know, it's great, but you know, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, like as an adaptation is I really do understand now where people are coming from when they say that this is an amazing cinematic achievement, you know, because there are so fucking many ways that Lord of the Rings as a story, or I guess as like as an enterprise could have gone horribly, horribly wrong when adapted into live action cinema, you know? There are so many ways it could have gotten completely screwed up that it's kind of a miracle that Peter Jackson stuck the landing for all three movies, right? And and so, like I say, you know, this is just one of those things where I don't want this to get worn out. Now, uh, like I say, this um, this uh, th- this past weekend was a, a three day weekend. And the original plan that I had was to watch, well, I'll circle back to it in just a minute, but basically to watch The Hobbit on Friday night and then watch uh, Fellowship of the Ring on Saturday, The Two Towers on Sunday, and then Return of the King on Monday, which I I don't know about the rest of you, but I at least had had Monday off, right? That was the plan, and it didn't exactly work out that way, you know, Friday night. Mostly I just, for reasons that I don't really want to go too much into here, I came home from work every single day last week, including Friday, but every single day last week so pissed off I couldn't even see straight. And so the last thing I wanted to do on Friday night was watch the Hobbit, right? So I just watched Lord of the Rings and figured, well, I'll just call it even with that. Maybe I can uh, catch The Hobbit later. Now, watching Lord of the Rings now, you know, one of the things that kind of struck me about it is you've got the ring, right? And this is the most evil thing that's ever that, that's ever been created. It 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 doesn't have the power to save or to rescue or anything. It can only destroy. It can only corrupt. It can only ever be evil. Only this and nothing more. And so the way that the ring is ultimately destroyed, like when you think about it, 
it goes against a lot of the, I shouldn't say rules of storytelling, but a lot of the basic assumptions that people would have about how you would go about destroying something that's that freaking dangerous. You know, like, I think instinctively, a lot of people would would want uh, uh, Rohan, Gondor, and the Fellowship of the Ring, and I guess probably the elves, all of them to join forces, march on Mordor, break inside, storm the castle, and then, uh, I guess, kind of like a suicide squad type of team. They make a run for it, and they haul balls in, uh, into uh, Mount Doom, and that's... You know, they're basically, you know, on a little bit of a suicide mission as sort of a splinter group to destroy the ring. Right. And I think that's what most people would assume would happen in a story like this. And the fact that the destruction of the ring ultimately is entrusted to these two humble, lowly hobbits who, when you think about it, don't have a snowball's chance in hell of success. That's an incredibly original way of destroying the ring, you know, because we know that we know that the ring has got to be destroyed. This book is not going to end without the ring being destroyed. We all know this. So really it comes down to a question of how's it going to happen? And the way that Tolkien chose to do it, you know, I can't help but think that this is not the way that 99% of writers in the world would have chosen to do it. You know, they would have gone for some kind of, you know, explosive climax with an invasion of of Mordor and the good guys. They have to they have to, uh, you know, steal this or not steal. They have to destroy the, uh, you know, the secret weapon and, and all this stuff. And that's not the way that Tolkien did it. And so, I, you know, again, I mean, I realize that Lord of the Rings isn't necessarily propelled by the originality of its of its narrative. But this is nevertheless a pretty freaking original narrative, guys. I mean, this is, you know, when you really stop to think about it, this is just so counterintuitive to the way that most people would would write the destruction of the ring. And what I think a lot of audiences just kind of subconsciously expect, you're playing a little bit against type by having the big battle that most assuredly does play, uh, take place just outside of the gates in Mordor, there is a big battle that's going on there, but that's, that's a distraction. You know, basically you've got, I, I don't want to call it the last, like the last Alliance part. Duh. They're basically outside of the gates of Mordor and they're basically out there as much as anything to, to cause a distraction just on the off chance that Frodo and Sam are still alive and they're in a position to destroy the ring. And that maybe by drawing all attention to themselves, they can give Frodo enough room to do what he needs to do. And then that the real battle, in some ways, it takes place inside of Frodo's own heart. Like, does he have the strength to let go of the ring and, and, and drop it into the fire? And then it becomes a little bit more of a literal battle between, you know, him and Gollum, you know, who wants the ring for himself. And... I mean, again, I mean, I, I can't sit here and say that like, oh, this is the most original uh, story that anybody's ever told. I would never make that claim. But number one, I mean, it is pretty original. You know, I don't think most people would have told this story in this way. And I don't think most people who are taking this story in for the first time are necessarily expecting that, you know. And I don't know, just 
sometimes I guess what you need to do is is look at something again with a fresh pair of eyes and I don't know, just maybe just use that as an occasion to 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 reevaluate things a little bit, I guess. You know. And I don't know. I mean, just overall, this is actually part of the reason why I only want to watch Lord of the Rings once per year. You know, I want to have moments like that where I can just sit back and just enjoy something and just be transfixed by it. Right. Like this is one of the few times I can ever really remember getting choked up about the death of Boromir. Like I really liked Boromir during this rewatch of Lord of the Rings that I did over the weekend you know, I really like Boromir, you know, I just kind of dig his style. I mean, yeah, he made a kind of shitty decision, but when it mattered, he did the right thing, you know, and I think that says a lot about the guy, you know, so anyway. Now, I mentioned uh, The Hobbit uh, just, a, just a little while ago. Um, ages and ages and ages ago, I know that I mentioned that I because I own legal copies of the Hobbit trilogy, like the movies, the, the Hobbit trilogy movies, I own legal copies of those. I don't have a, uh, a moment's bit of guilt for downloading a fan edit because I own, I own the actual movies guys. So this is like fair use and stuff, but uh, I made a bunch of noise ages and ages ago about uh, the Tolkien edit. That's what it's called. It's a fan edit of the Hobbit called the Tolkien edit, you know, and I don't know, chalk it up to good luck, I guess. But I fell ass backwards into another fan edit of The Hobbit that basically sets out to do the same thing as the Tolkien edit does. This one's called Maple Films Edit. But the, the agenda for both of them is actually pretty simple. The three Hobbit movies, you know, as narratives, they're kind of bloated and maybe a little bit self-important. So the purpose of these fan edits is as much as possible to, to cut things down to the stuff that Tolkien actually wrote, you know? And like I say, I started off with the, the Tolkien edit, and then later I, uh, I stumbled across the Maple Films edit. And I've been, and I've stuck, I would say, pretty much with the, the Maple Films edit really for like the past, I would say, like two years maybe and basically the uh the maple films edit much like the tolkien edit it basically combines the extended edition of, of all three movies but pairs it down you know all three of them pairs them down into one four-hour movie the idea being like you know like i said a second ago to stick with the stuff that tolkien actually wrote right and i got i have to tell you the final product it's not perfect but it's really good, you know, and it gives the narrative a sense of focus that the original, the original novel had, which the movies kind of lack. And yes, I know there are reasons why the movies are, are, are done the way that they're done. And I'm not second guessing Peter Jackson for that. I mean, he was really under the gun for a lot of different things here. And I understand that. But at the end of the day, the fact that Peter Jackson was kind of fighting City Hall as he made the Hobbit trilogy doesn't really change the fact that the Hobbit trilogy as films, they're just kind of weak sauce, you know, and the Maple Films edit kind of straightens a lot of that stuff out. 
And on top of that, not only does it straighten out problems with The Hobbit, you know, as a story that Tolkien wrote that was once a book, but there's, a, there's also kind of like a mini movie that gets thrown in with uh, the Maple Films edit, which is called uh, Durin's Folk and the Hill of Sorcery, which is really good. I mean, it's basically, it tells a little bit about, well, Durin's Folk, but uh, the rest of it, it, it basically comes down to the investigation of Dol Guldur, uh, first featuring uh, Radagast the Brown, and then following that later in the mini-movie, the uh, the council, you know, they all basically show up there and, and uh, duke it out with with Sauron. Pretty, I mean, because that's pretty much who it is, it's Sauron. And it's a really cool uh, movie, but it, now it being as it's separated from The Hobbit, you can, in, you know, you can watch it or not watch it as you see fit. Enjoy it or not enjoy it as you see fit. You know, now me, I really get into it. I think it's great. But, you know, if somebody who, somebody who's kind of a purist, completely determined to avoid anything to do with all of that Durin's Folk, Hill of Sorcery, Investigation of Dol Guldur stuff, somebody who's determined to avoid that, well, now you can. And I guess that's the point. And, you know, the flip side to that is somebody who just wants to watch the Investigation of Dol Guldur all by itself and you don't want to have to sit through what basically amounts to like 12 hours of film in order to get there. Well, now you have that option. So overall, assuming you own the Hobbit trilogy, whether it's on Blu-ray or just whatever you got, DVD or just whatever you've got, I would actually recommend, you know, as long as you own own the movies, I would recommend uh, tracking down the Maple Films that it should be easy enough to find if you know where to look. And satisfaction pretty much is is guaranteed i say so uh anyway so and that's pretty much it for me at least for right now when it comes to lord of the rings i mean i do intend to revisit this subject in the future in a format that i'm not sure most of you guys are going to be expecting but i'm going to have help a, a certain podcaster out there has uh, volunteered his services uh, for some uh, lord of the rings slash general tolkien episodes in the future and so I, what I ended up doing was taking this podcaster up on his gracious offer to join in with me and help me out. And so uh, probably sometime after my hiatus, just kind of as an irregular thing, I would imagine, uh, me and the mystery podcaster are going to get together and occasionally just kind of shoot the bull about Tolkien. But I think that's pretty much it for me for right now. So bye, everybody. I will see you next time. I think that's just about the end of that. 
Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks podcast network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trentusmagnus at gmail.com. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. Visit our website at twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at twotruefreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a little cut of what you buy and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you get to shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Two True Freaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on iTunes, and you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish, or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. We have so many shows to choose from, there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. Just search Two True Freaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and the number two. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? If you've enjoyed our show, please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonzacor of Milan, Italy. <laughs> <laughs>